awakened spirit, growing one awareness at a time. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Psych and Spirit. Imagine this scenario. You're sitting in a college class and it's presentation day. All of the students are presenting their topics to the class today and there are some really interesting ones. You want to enjoy the other students' presentations, but unfortunately, all you can feel is your heart beating rapidly in your chest, the shakiness of your arms and legs, and the butterflies in your stomach. You feel like you want to throw up or cry, or maybe both. The anticipation of presenting has you at a level of anxiety that is so overwhelming, it's all you can do to sit in your chair quietly when you know you have to stand up in front of the class soon. How would you rate your anxiety level? Probably really high, almost panic level high, maybe a nine out of 10. The moment finally comes and you feel like you're about to throw up all over the classroom. But instead you stand up, go to the front of the class and start talking. You don't really remember everything you say because your body is so activated that you're almost out of your body while you present. But you get through it and you think later that it must have made sense. All you know is you got through it and after you finished, you feel relieved. The person experiencing this scenario wasn't just experiencing anxiety, it was a deeper fear. This is a fear of being evaluated, judged, and embarrassed or humiliated This is a socially based fear, and just one of many that I'll mention today. But we often label these fears as anxieties. Anxiety is a hot topic these days, and everyone knows what that means. But if you framed it as fear instead of anxiety, does that change anything? Fear is the deeper origin of anxiety. Anxiety is simply the clinical term we use as a manifestation of that fear. And it affects us, every single one of us. Well, there are a few exceptions. And those folks typically end up in prisons, but the vast majority of us feel fear. Which deeper fears create anxiety for you? I find that most people tend to fear one or more of the following. Uncertainty, financial difficulties, abandonment, isolation or rejection, or love just not lasting. Never being able to conquer their fears or afraid of fear coming up again. Fear of death or dying, fear of commitment, fear of vulnerability or sharing the deepest parts of you with someone else, fear of being trapped in anything, fear of boredom, fear of being alone, fear of emotions or moods never going away, fear of germs, disorganization, heights, spiders, enclosed spaces. Uh, I could go on. Those are phobias. So phobias are somewhat common and involve a paralyzing fear of a creature or a situation. But let's talk about a few of these fears in depth. Many fears center around relationships and or love. Fear of commitment, rejection, abandonment, love not lasting, fear of commitment. Oh, I said that twice. These are pretty pervasive fears. Some of us are afraid of rejection in some way with a deeper belief that others won't love us if they really know us or truly see us as we are warts and all. We may try to hide behind a facade or a mask to look like we aren't afraid, or make excuses and end relationships preemptively, or refuse to be vulnerable with others because we think they won't like us if they know us. 
fear of vulnerability is huge, and it's often a part of these socially-based or relationship-based fears. The fears around relationships are usually a deeper fear of being seen, as we are, naked, vulnerable, our insecurities, our limitations, our annoying habits, our secrets, our shames, and sometimes fear of seeing our love or the more positive things about us. Let's talk about financial fears. Financial fears are not to be underestimated. A fair number of people have a strong fear that they will run out of money or not have enough money to survive. And for some, this fear is not unfounded, but based in reality of financial hardship. So particularly for folks who live around the poverty level or even above it, but struggling with food insecurity, housing difficulties, etc., These are the folks who may have their power turned off at some point and have no savings, can't afford clothes or necessities and things like that. Their fears are not unfounded, but based in reality. However, there are also also folks out there who may have endured hardship at one time, but they have the fear that they will go back to enduring financial hardship, even if that doesn't happen and isn't even realistic. There are also folks who never endured financial hardship at all and are middle to upper SES, uh, socioeconomic status, but they're just fearful of losing their current lifestyle or their financial status, that it will all be taken away from them in the blink of an eye if they don't have a constant stream of, uh, of income. And finally, in our common fears list, the big beast of uncertainty. Many of us are afraid of what will happen or what could happen, and that fear can be overwhelming. When you get a funny looking bump on your skin or you have a weird pain in your chest, how many of you think about cancer or heart problems? It's the what if game that we play in our heads, right? What if I get cancer? What if my spouse is late because they got into a car accident? What if I never find a job? What if I never go over this fear of uncertainty? The what if game is a nasty game for people who fear uncertainty. And it encourages a never-ending cycle of worry. But you can't simply solve uncertainty, right? You can't know what that bump is until you see your doctor. Life is full of uncertainty, a lot of it. How many of you noticed that you were more afraid after COVID hit in 2020 because of the uncertainty of whether you and your family or friends would be safe? Uncertainty can drive some people to ruminate, which, as I mentioned in a previous episode, is to think about a problem or a possible problem in the future that could arise in this case, but without thinking of solutions. You're just dwelling on the situation, which makes the fear worse. Spoiler alert, the solution to uncertainty is not controlling everything and everyone around you. The reality is uncertainty can never be resolved. There's no way to remove uncertainty from your life. And the more you try to control aspects of your life, the more life will throw you curveballs. We simply can't control everything in our lives to remove uncertainty. We can try, but it will backfire spectacularly, whether through failed relationships or children resenting you or friends distancing themselves from you uh, because you are too controlling and too rigid or some other consequence. This doesn't mean that you can't prepare for things or at least be aware of possibilities, but it's not the same thing as ruminating on the fear of uncertainty. And interestingly, trying to control everything around you is a form of avoidance, which we will talk about later. Now that we've talked about some common fears that people have, let's talk about the nuts and bolts of fear and anxiety. 
how is fear different from anxiety? In the clinical literature, so in psychology um, and uh, psychiatry literature, fear is more intense and activates the sympathetic nervous system, uh, the, also the autonomic nervous system uh, higher up to create the arousal necessary for fight or flight, uh, to either flee or fight um, in, in situations of danger. But anxiety is more often associated with muscle tension and vigilance to a future, uh, future threat, perhaps. While we may be anxious about a future event, such as presenting in front of our peers or strangers, the level of arousal that we can feel can quickly switch over from anxiety to fear in a heartbeat. If we think there is real danger, if we perceive there's real danger, that's different from there actually being real danger. So the 10 seconds before that student in our example is called up to present, but knows they're about to be called on, that student may be going into a fight or flight response in their body, which is fear, not just anxiety. They might be panicking. But they are closely related. We would be anxious if we didn't experience fear. Um, at, we, we would not be anxious if we didn't experience fear at some point. As I mentioned before, in the broader scope of life, fear is really the root of anxiety. So I'm less interested in the theory behind the distinctions between anxiety and fear um, in the literature and more interested in these similarities. We have anxiety because we fear something, and that is the lens with which I'm discussing fear today. And what is fear? For the majority of us, it's false evidence appearing real. That acronym is mentioned in the Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Anxiety, but the late Dr. Wayne Dyer coined the phrase in his book, The Power of Intentions. Let's sit with that phrase for a minute. False evidence appearing real. That is what fear is. We mistake a thought, emotion, or a sensation in our body as evidence that there's a real reason to be afraid or anxious. But for most of us, especially those who struggle with an anxiety disorder, there's no real threat. It's imagined. Or maybe it's a real threat, but the fear is really out of proportion to the actual risk. So if you're afraid of spiders, sure, some are poisonous, but the most that you see and interact with in your daily life, or not interact, but see in your daily life around the house, are not poisonous. So if you're afraid of all of them to the point at which you can't even be in the same room with a house spider, your fear is out of proportion to the threat. And our minds and bodies proceed as if our fears were real or reasonable. And we believe our thoughts. Those are some key points there. So we proceed as if our fears were real or reasonable. And we also believe our thoughts, our fear thoughts around whatever fear it is. Now, a quick caveat, some forms of fear have been based on events that are real and some fears are very much based in reality. So this part is not meant for those folks whose fears are truly based in reality, but for folks who have identified that their fear is really out of proportion to the situation. That's up to you to discern but either way, living in fear can affect us negatively regardless. And what happens when we fear something or we feel anxiety about something? We tend to avoid it. We move away from it.
Avoidance and fear are forever linked. The fear is the cause, the avoidance is the effect, or the reaction to the fear. We avoid because we are afraid. Let's go back to that initial example of the student giving the presentation. That student in this example has social anxiety, which means that they fear being judged and evaluated, rejected, criticized, etc. And they fear embarrassment and looking like a fool. So how does this person likely respond to this deep fear? If they aren't challenging the fear, this person is avoiding speaking up in class, avoids talking to people they don't know well, avoids presenting in class as much as they can. It sounds extreme, but this person may be afraid to get up during class to go to the restroom because they're afraid of drawing attention to themselves. Maybe this person avoids talking to their professors because they're afraid to look silly or ask a dumb question. Maybe this person doesn't get to know their classmates and has a hard time making friends and feels lonely because they're too afraid to put themselves out there because it's just too scary. Maybe this person goes through college being unseen and largely invisible because they're so quiet and afraid to reach out and get to know others. This is avoidance out of fear and the effects could be very damaging to the student emotionally and psychologically. Maybe the student feels isolated, lonely, and develops depression because of the avoidance. This is not an uncommon experience for people with extreme social anxiety. And also it's important to note that a lot of folks with anxiety uh, disorders tend to also suffer from depression, major depressive disorder. That's pretty common to have that comorbidity. So let's look at the bigger picture. You can see how fear can start to really shape our lives in ways we don't want it want to and intend it to. Fear starts to limit us because we have to avoid it to stay safe. And it works in the short term. You know, if you don't want to present because it gives you so much anxiety, if you have that social anxiety, it feels good in the moment to avoid that situation and it reduces your anxiety in the moment. If germs are your fear, you start shaping your life around managing the fear and reducing it by not touching as many surfaces, not going out to as many places. Maybe you wash your hands all the time and shower incessantly. And this takes away time from you living your life meaningfully. Maybe your fear is vulnerability, so you do your best to make others believe you're invulnerable by not sharing anything real or deep about yourself. And you keep conversations and relationships superficial. Maybe your fear is financial concerns, so your form of avoidance is to become a workaholic, even if you hate your job and feel miserable working 60-hour work weeks because you tell yourself you need the money even if you'd manage without the extra income. Side note, this does not apply to folks who are financially struggling because that is not just a fear, but a reality. However, I'm speaking to the folks who are middle to upper SES who convince themselves that the time away from their family is worth it because they need the extra money to maintain their lifestyle. For those of us who are afraid of love ending, we might start to distance ourselves from our partner because our fears of the love not lasting take over. And our form of avoidance is to be more careful about what we share with that partner. Kind of like the vulnerability fear. They're, they're pretty similar. And then our partner wonders what's going on. And now there might be some tension between the two of you that's starting to create disconnection. And that disconnection may lead to the feared situation that you wanted to avoid. 
for folks who are afraid of death or dying. Simple things like maybe letting friends drive us places or riding a roller coaster may be avoided because they're seen as just too dangerous. For those of us who are afraid of emotions and emotions never going away, they will distract and do anything. Uh, we will distract and do anything to not feel emotions in an attempt to get rid of them immediately. Maybe this person feels sadness come up and instead of allowing the sadness and maybe sitting with it or journaling about it, just acknowledging it, the person immediately watches TV to stop feeling it or jumps into work or exercise to shift the focus. For folks with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, avoiding talking about trauma, avoiding places, people, sounds, sights, and smells that remind them of the trauma serves to perpetuate the symptoms and actually prevents healing from taking place. One of the most popular evidence-based treatments for PTSD is prolonged exposure, um, which I've been trained in. And at its core, it's just exposing yourself to the fear by telling your trauma story over and over again until it no longer holds the same power over you. As well as changing your behaviors to expose yourself to feared situations out in public so that the fear response decreases over time. It works remarkably well, as strange as it may sound. Ultimately, avoidance keeps fear in control and not us. Fear takes over, and if it does, we're just along for the ride. And it's not a fun ride. With all of these examples, you can see how fear starts to box us in and create lives that are ultimately less fulfilling, less present, and less meaningful. We aren't doing as many things that may bring us joy because our fear has started to control us. We're no longer driving the bus, so to speak. Now we're just passengers. Fear has a grip on our lives, making our lives a little more empty and a lot more difficult. We're less present in our lives when we avoid out of fear because we can't enjoy as many things if we have to avoid certain interactions, places, activities, or people. We're also less present because we feel that rumbling anxiety in our stomachs when we think about the thing we fear, which pulls us out of feeling any other emotion, including empathy and compassion. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but when you feel high anxiety, you can't feel any other emotion because the fear is just overwhelming. So then all the other emotions get shoved aside and pushed down and we don't get to experience them. Fear is exhausting, isn't it? And ultimately, fear takes away from our gifts and our contributions to the world. I believe that we are each unique and have something to offer, but if we're controlled by our fears, we can't share our gifts or live out our true potential. Life can become more meaningless and just more robotic since we're just managing our fear, which ends up taking away from our ability to just be. I can't emphasize that point enough. Fear can dampen us like a wet blanket, keeping our true selves from shining through. It can even make us seem really unlikable if we're focused on avoiding fear and in fact doing it so much that we don't see what's in front of us. We probably look distracted. We might even be irritable or unpleasant to be around. The bottom line is that avoidance is a strategy that we all use to some extent, and it helps us feel better in the moment. 
but it hurts us in the long run when we overutilize it for our fear and anxiety because it starts to really limit our lives. So now that we know that the most common way to deal with anxiety and fear in the short term is not helpful, what can we do about our fears and anxieties? That is the million dollar question and why many folks go to therapy. I can't resolve anxiety in one podcast episode, but I can share a little bit about my philosophy and some tips. I myself am a fan of cognitive behavioral therapy, which seeks to change patterns of thinking while including a change in behavior. And acceptance and commitment therapy specifically embraces the idea that we acknowledge our thoughts relating to anxiety without judging them or evaluating them. Plus, we take steps to face our fears in our daily lives instead of avoiding experiences. And then we live according to our values so that we don't get boxed in by fear. In sum, we try to be present, open up, and do what matters. It's easier said than done, believe me, but let's break it down in the context of our student example. The student who's presenting is dreading the presentation. Maybe they're having a stream of thought that looks like this. I hate this feeling of anxiety. I hate presenting. I wish this would go away. I hate feeling this way. Why am I so scared of something so stupid? No one else is this scared and I hate feeling like this. It goes back to the beginning and so on. It's an endless stream of judgments and evaluations. What if the student thought this instead? I feel anxiety in my body. I acknowledge that I'm feeling anxious and then let go of the judgments if they arise by just saying, I'm having the thought that I hate this feeling and then letting it go. I take it one step further than ACT, or acceptance and commitment therapy, by adding self-compassion and say to yourself, I'm going to be fine. It's okay to be anxious or feel anxious. It'll be done in 20 minutes or whatever that period is for that student. And then let go of any further judgments. You will still feel the anxiety in the moment. I'm not going to lie. You're still going to feel it. But it will keep you from ruminating on it. And that's a good start. But here's the next piece. You can't just do the thought piece. You also have to add something. You have to expose yourself to more anxiety-provoking situations so that you don't avoid them. Maybe the student decides to set a goal to speak up in class more. Or maybe they set a goal to talk more in a certain setting or chooses to be the person who presents the most in their group to challenge themselves. Maybe they take the famous psychologist Albert Ellis's route and ask 130 women in a park on a date to get over their social anxiety. The students still might have anxiety when they present after this, but the more they expose themselves to the anxiety, the more it will lessen over time. And by the way, it really did work for Albert Ellis, although he didn't get any dates. Um, I think one woman agreed, but then never showed up, if I recall correctly. But then after that, Ellis was really no longer afraid of rejection by the end, and he ended up having some really stimulating conversations with the women along the way, even if he didn't get the date. The last piece is living according to your values. Maybe the student values education and decides to pursue further education and learning, despite knowing there will be many more presentations ahead of them. Maybe this person values fairness so that even though they have social anxiety, they decide to speak up when they see something unfair, despite the fear of being judged or criticized. 
For the rest of us, maybe we value things like honesty and hiding parts of ourselves to avoid vulnerability really doesn't fit with that value. So we work harder to be open and honest. Maybe we value family deeply and our fear of lacking money takes away from our time to be present with our family. So we try to live more closely aligned with that value while balancing financial obligations. Maybe we value excitement and spontaneity. So folks who fear uncertainty start to do little things to make the day have more variety and excitement and unplanned elements to it. Maybe we fear germs, but we choose a path that will directly challenge that fear because it represents something we value. If we are strongly aligned with our values, our behaviors should match up with them. Our values can serve as a guidepost to help us live more meaningful lives. Whether we value joy, family, kindness, excitement, aesthetic beauty, love, humor, justice, integrity, curiosity, adventure, cooperation, fitness, flexibility, order, persistence, and so on. There are a lot of values out there. I'll add one more practice that is not part of ACT per se, but tends to be effective, breathing. Breathing can slow down our bodies and take us out of the fight or flight response. They can activate the parasympathetic nervous system uh, to get technical. But the reality is, is if you slow down your breathing, your heart rate starts to go down. Your blood pressure starts to go down. And you have a more calm physi physiological reaction, essentially, and it, which can also help calm your mind. I strongly encourage slow breaths for at least five minutes if you're feeling intense anxiety or fear. I often encourage a longer exhale than inhale. So breathing into the count of four and out to the count of five can be helpful if you do it for long enough to lower your heart rate. It also helps to make sure you are expanding your stomach as you inhale instead of your chest, which can be more constricting or at least feel more constricting for us. If you want a real challenge, you can do four, four, seven breaths, which is inhaling to the count of four, holding to the count of four, and exhaling to the count of seven. That one's a tough one, I'm going to say. Uh, when folks feel anxiety, sometimes they feel like they're choking when they're holding their breath, but it can be very, very effective as well. In the end, we all experience anxiety and fear, and it's not abnormal or wrong or scary. It's just a part of life. However, when fear starts taking over and we can't sleep most nights, or we start avoiding things, or we start to lose touch with our emotions, our other emotions, our fear has started taking over to the point where we might need a change. Today, we've talked about fear, avoidance, and how we can start to challenge it through thoughts, actions, and values. That's just a small taste of how to work with anxiety of fear. I know it's not as easy as it sounds, but with practice, it gets better over time. And remember, for most of us, fear is just false evidence appearing real. We don't have to buy into it or believe it. We also don't have to believe that it defines us as human beings. That if you're afraid of, I don't know, uh, presenting in class or afraid of talking to strangers with that social anxiety, we don't have to believe that that's a defining part of our personality. 
Of course, logically, we can understand that fear is just a collection of bodily sensations and thoughts. But until we change our behaviors and stop avoiding the fear to feel better in the short term, the fear or anxiety will not subside. Small steps to a larger goal. So I encourage you to start to look at your thoughts when you feel anxious and start to challenge them or let them go. Some folks find that letting go of thoughts is actually really, really difficult at first, and they might find it easier to start with just changing the language of the thoughts. So challenging negative thinking or anxious thinking or what ifs with rational thoughts or self-compassionate thoughts. The latter is sort of like coaching yourself through difficulty as if you were talking to a friend, as I talked about in the first podcast episode on self-compassion. I also encourage you to catch up yourself avoiding something due to fear and choose one small change in behavior to face it instead, just once, even if it's little, whatever it is. Finally, think about your values and what really matters to you in life. If you aren't sure, there is a great list of several values from an ACT website that I'll include in the episode notes to help you identify which values matter most to you. And because breathing can slow down our bodies and take us out of the fight or flight response, I strongly encourage the four to five, uh, the four or five slow breaths for at least five minutes and expanding your stomach rather than your chest if you're feeling anxiety. If you want to, you can even journal about your biggest fear to gain further insight. Now I say all of these things and you're wondering, okay, well, what do you do when you get anxiety? Are you doing the same thing? Here's the thing. I actually use these strategies myself when anxiety or fear gets intense. And I find that the self, uh, the self-compassionate talk is particularly helpful when I'm struggling versus a panicky and self-critical voice. I sometimes journal about it if I find that it is intense as well. That's one of my tools. Um, I also try to live in accordance with my values, some of which are in direct conflict with my fears. And that completely forces me to challenge my fears regularly. I also use breathing and moving toward the fear or anxiety provoking situation as needed when it arises. Now, does that mean I never get anxious? Oh, absolutely not. Of course not. It just means that I use tools to face it when it comes up. I'm out here doing it with you and it's a journey. I'm also not perfect. I certainly find myself indulging in avoidance from time to time for sure, as we all do. But overall, I use the same skills I encourage others to use to face fear. And it really does work over time. That concludes today's episode on fear. Thanks for joining me. Until next time. Shea Dashton. 